This summer, don't just watch soccer. Play in the DraftKings Real Shot Challenge presented by Jägermeister. The rules of the game are simple. Just pick winners. At the end of the tournament, the five top point getters in each nation's leaderboard walk home with a national team jersey and a Jägermeister jacket. All entries are automatically entered into an overall leaderboard where the prizes are even more lucrative, like the ultimate fan experience, an all-expenses-paid trip to the winning team's country to celebrate sweet, sweet victory like a local. Enjoy a VIP soccer experience, including game tickets, transportation, and swag, plus extra cash so you can roll like a meister. You don't need cash to enter. It's free. So what are you waiting for? Head to DraftKings.com slash RealShot to adopt your team, get in the game, and win exclusive prizes. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash RealShot for details. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast World Cup Daily. Day six of World Cup 2018 is done. Brian Strauss and I will be talking about that and other topics today as part of our podcast coming to you daily from Russia through July 16th. Just a small request, it would be a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I'm also joined by U.S. Soccer President Carlos Cordero, who gives us the inside skinny of how the World Cup 26 bid was won and explains what's on his plate next with U.S. Soccer. Onward! Brian Strauss and Grant Wall here once again outside tonight. Uh, we near have the survived another day. We have, and the sounds you're going to be hearing in terms of honking horns from cars all around Red Square here are because Russia has won tonight 3-1 to one against Egypt and has six points and is all but assured of going through to the round of 16. If there was a World Cup of horn honking, the Russians would do very well in it. There's a lot of robust, and the cars here, they, they have a lot of like sturdy vehicles, and so you can sort of hear it. I had to walk over from whatever metro station I got. It's a different metro station every night, I feel like, and I had to do sort of the half-mile walk, um, and every single person was leaning on their horns and screaming, you know, Rosia, Rosia, and flags and nonsense and mayhem, and uh, they're fired up. I don't think most of them expected, uh, well, certainly they didn't expect eight goals and two wins, and I'm sure most of them didn't expect a fourth game, and it looks like they're going to get it. Yeah, I mean, plus seven goal difference uh, for Russia after two games. Now, 5 nothing against Saudi Arabia is one thing. This Egypt team is not a terrible team. Uh, they weren't very good tonight, however. Defensive errors from what I saw. I mean, I was at the Senegal-Poland game, and we were in the media center afterwards writing, and sort of, you know, you got one eye on your story, and you got one eye on the on the match. Um, yeah, and a, a terrible own goal, looked like, and then... Uh, five now in the tournament. And, and then... Um, Really? Yeah. Own goal is the golden yeah. boot favorite. <laughs> it's like a couple seasons with DC United where own goal won the club golden boot. Um, I, I've said this before. I think own goals are handed out too liberally. Like, I don't think the, the, the Senegal's first goal against Poland should have been an own goal. That was a deflection. You know, the, I don't know that the player consciously played it into his own net. The Egyptian defender certainly did that. Um, that was an own goal. And then was it the second? Again, you're writing, you're working, you're on deadline. But one of the other goals... Um, the, the, was it, I don't know if it was Cherish we scored it, but sort of tapped it under the def- you know sort of some slight defending by Egypt and 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 a, a tap under the player's leg and was able to get a shot on frame and 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 curled it in. Um, you know I thought Egypt was supposed to be pretty stout and well organized right. and uh, they didn't look like it tonight. Yeah, and I'm bummed out that Mohamed Salah is not going to be with us for very long in this tournament. We've seen sad Mo Salah now for about a month straight, and I want to see the Mo Salah that was scoring goals and smiling for Liverpool all season. Sergio Ramos, man. Yeah, I mean, 
the, I think the Grim Reaper. <laughs> seriously, I mean, I think Salah will stay at Liverpool, and I think that's the right choice. But, um, you know, he was just such an amazing player all season long. And, and to have a player come out of nowhere to become suddenly one of the best players in the world it was such a cool story that brought smiles to everyone's face. And it's been just very difficult uh, over the last few weeks for him. Uh, that's the way things go at the World Cup. You find out in 180 minutes very quickly uh, which direction some things are going to go. I definitely feel like, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of the, the hordes descending on the city and, you know, the city sort of being a gateway to Russia and everyone who wants to come to the World Cup passing through Moscow and staying here for a bit and spending some of that time in my way. Um, and it's like the mosquitoes have now realized all of the meat that is here in this city. Because I'm just getting bombarded. Seriously? Right. Yeah. I thought like, it was just Volgograd. I feel like the last day and a half, uh, the mosquitoes have found uh, have found us. It's kind of it's it's nuts out Maybe here. Maybe it's because I'm standing next to a very bright light. <laughs> Maybe that's why it is. <laughs> I should get. I'm already beneath you. I should get even more beneath you to protect myself. Um, so what, what else did we have here today? We had Senegal two, Poland one. Yep. We had Japan two, Colombia one. Um, Bit on the leg just now. But the, both of those results come in a group H that anything could have happened in that group the second that you saw it drawn last December. And I think that's actually a good thing that uh, FIFA changed the, the draw to allow for more balanced groups. But the two favorites were still Colombia and Poland, both of them losing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Senegal and Japan suddenly have three points and a lot more could happen in this group. I think this is one where it's really going to go down to the wire and all four teams might be... Uh, in it until the very end. Well, I was at the I was at the Sun and Gall game. Um, it was cool. Uh, they deserved to win the game. They 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 got some some luck and some bounces, but they they made their luck and made their bounces and um, really put uh, really made life difficult for Poland. Really did well, sort of uh, swarming the midfield and cutting service off to Lewandowski and and. Um, you know, the uh, obviously people will be talking about the second goal and sort of the, the hockey line change, you know, or, or the player, uh, you know, busting out of the penalty box and, and, and getting onto the end of a long pass. Of course, the pass coming from a Polish player, uh, the midfielder. Um, but uh, but again, a deserved win. And, and, and so, you know, there should be a story up now. Uh, I wrote about, you know, Africa's hope now is Senegal. I mean, uh, you know, in... Uh, um, in the late 1970s, Pelé predicted that Africa would win a World Cup by, by 2000. Um, so that last World Cup, that last chance for him to be right, and of course he's always wrong, and that's kind of p- part of the joke, but it's now but 20 years uh, that, that Pele's been proven wrong. Only three quarterfinalists still for African teams, and by and large they're not competitive. I mean, uh, the, 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 I don't think the North African teams have the talent, and for whatever reason the West African teams have the talent, but are really just never able to put it together. You look at these teams' rosters, and they're loaded uh, with players in the top five European leagues, but it just never clicks for a variety of reasons. And Senegal's a good team, and they're well-coached, and they seem to have a lot of passion and, and, and unity and cohesiveness and spirit and in the way they play and they're saying all the right things and then as you said they're in a group that they could now win you know and they they win this group and maybe they get England in a in a, in a round of 16 game that's a winnable game so you know maybe we're in position to see an African team make a real run here and that was sort of what I got out of the game today and it was uh it was cool this is going to be a storyline to watch I would love to see Senegal make another run you know the last time they were in the tournament was 2002 yep. where they beat France went to the quarterfinals one of those three quarterfinals we've seen from Africa and they're captain from that team is Ali Usise, who's their coach now. And by the way, the only black African coach yep. in the tournament. Yep. 
um, with Black Coach period in the tournament. And he talked about that a couple of days ago. And we've seen for so many decades now basically white Europeans coaching African teams. That's the trend we've seen. Uh, or white Europeans or South Americans like Hector Cooper. Um, that's what we're seeing in this tournament as well. And I thought it was kind of cool that Cissé said a couple of days ago he would like to see um, – more black coaches in European clubs. You'd like to see more black coaches in African national teams, all that stuff, because there's some kind of code word stereotypes you hear in some of the language used in media, often by white media, to describe African teams. And you know what I'm talking about here. We're talking about, oh, they're not tactically disciplined. You know, they lack discipline. They're not. I, I heard at one point uh, in this tournament that the white German coach of Nigeria has brought professionalism to the Nigerian team that has millionaires from the Premier League <laughs> right. on it. You know, it's absolutely ludicrous. Well, one of the and one of the things Cisse said in the postgame press conference today is he pointed out how disciplined they were. He used that word. You know, he talked about sort of their, you know, they played out of, in, out of a, it looked like at least I was at a strange angle, were pretty low at that stadium, but it looked like they were playing out of a 4-4-2, and, 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 and they did that solidly. Um, and they put, like I said, they put Poland under a lot of pressure, really did a good job cutting off service, and, and he paid tribute to, to both their discipline and their, their effort. Look, there, there are, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but there are myriad reasons, as much as there may be um, bias uh, against African coaches, um, there are self-inflicted wounds as well, as we've seen with the uh, Ghanaian corruption case. Uh, that, that just hit. Um, you know, the the, the Ghanaian players um, fighting with the federation was it four years ago, right? About right. payments and things like that. Um, it's also an issue of, of a lot of these guys leave young. Um, you know, the a lot of the European scouts and academies get their get their hands on these really really talented kids, and so you've got kids leaving home and, uh, at younger ages, and maybe there's an issue with chemistry and cohesion. You know, one guy leaves home at 15 to play in Italy, another leaves home at 15 to play in Belgium, and maybe bringing those guys together is tougher i mean there are just so many cultural and economic and 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 logistical reasons that could explain why one team or another doesn't do well but in the end uh, the the the, the data is there three quarter finalists in history uh for africa and it's just not good enough and 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 uh Cisse said you know you can imagine him saying in the press conference look you know, we're worried about Senegal. We're 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 here for us and our players and our country and our federation and our fans. And we're not gonna, we you know, we don't care what Egypt does and we don't care what Cameroon did in 1990. You know, we're here for. But he didn't say that. He said we're we're proud to carry the flag for Africa. And so that's going to be part of what motivates them. And and like I said, it's going to be a a cool story to watch. So it was a fun game to be at. Um, I was glad I got to see what what's probably the best African team um, before I uh, head out of Moscow. Senegal, by the way, the only African team to win a game so That's far. Obviously, right, yeah. 0-4, one goal scored uh, heading into, obviously Egypt played their second game today, but of, of the African debut games, uh, four losses, one goal, and there was a lot of pressure and some spotlight on Senegal to reverse that, and, and they did. They deserve to win today. We also had history in the first game today, Japan becoming the first Asian team ever to beat a South American team no in, way. in the Men's World Cup. How cool. I didn't uh, know that. So you learned something. Yeah. Uh, but... I thought Japan deserved a win. You know, this game was kind of crazy from the start with Carlos Sanchez of Colombia picking up the red card penalty with the Luis Suarez maneuver in the box. It wasn't to, that deliberate. It, was it wasn't pretty as bad. deliberate as Suarez. Like, I mean, he was splayed out a little bit much, but it wasn't like it was a volleyball spike. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Um, but 
how do you like to be a guy who like you play three minutes and you're like you're excited to play in your first World Marco Cup? Marco Echeverri. I don't know if it's his first World Cup. Marco, Marco Echeverri, Bolivia's first World Cup. He was on the field for like 45 seconds and got red carded, yeah. and that was it. Yeah. 94. See you later. Yeah. Um, Thanks so, for coming. <laughs> but uh, what was interesting about this game, I thought, was okay. So Japan converts the penalty. They're up a man and up a goal, and then down a man. Colombia actually starts to take control of the game in the first half and gets the equalizer um, off a free kick that went under the wall. There's all sorts of craziness in this game uh, that came after a, a phantom foul uh, called by the referee. So it's a 1-1 going into the second half. And you're thinking going into the second half, or I was, that Colombia is, is probably going to win this game, even though they're down a man. They had played better than Japan overall in the first half. And then Jose Peckerman started making his substitutions. And I was really not a fan of, in the end, the changes that he made. I thought they were very risky. I've rarely seen a coach of a team that is down a man making such attack-minded substitutions. I'll never get over the way he handled that game against Germany in 2006. I'll never get over it. And um, it'll scar me for life as a soccer fan. And every time I hear Peckerman's name, I have flashbacks. Um, and if you... You know, go read go read about it if you're not familiar. I mean, with I'll it. give a, a quick it's a very summation. Uh, quarterfinals, World Cup 2006, Argentina, Germany, uh, Argentina winnable up, game, winnable Argentina game. For Argentina up one nothing um, into until probably like the 80th minute. Uh, the crazy thing is Hernan Crespo, who was taken out of that game in the 79th minute, is on tonight with us on Fox, and we were talking about it earlier tonight. And you guys were talking about this game. Oh yeah, I, oh, told wow. him, I told him I will never forgive Peckerman as, awesome. as okay. for not bringing Messi into the game, but also taking, taking out, out all the taking, taking out, out Crespo and Riquelme in the in the 70s when they're up a man. And then in the what 80th, do we need? The, we're, we're trying Germany to nurse scores. the lead. What do we need the ball for? In the yeah. 80th, Germany scores. They win an extra or on penalties. Um, Brutal. And Messi never comes into the game. Good job, Jose Peckerman. Um, so yeah, I, I can't forget that and. So you see him make the substitutions he made today, and I thought when he brought on James Rodriguez, they got worse. Suddenly Japan was better again than Colombia. Japan ends up getting the, the game winner, and here we are. Colombia, uh, zero points. Japan, three. What, uh, what, other, uh, what other famous soccer person TV set gossip do you have? Um, I, saw, I, saw Shira, I saw Lineker outside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun where we are here inside the uh, – the rights holders compound. I mean, so, like, so I just saw Patrice ever walk by. Uh, we've got Hernan Crespo on with us on Fox tonight. We had Clarence Sadorf with us last night. It's kind of fun sharing the stage with these guys. How, so how do they decide who goes on and who says what? And, and like, sometimes you're on the panel and sometimes it's just Alexi tweeting pictures of you and your jogging shorts. Like, how, how do they figure out like well, who does what and how that all works? There's producers at Fox for each of the shows. Uh, there's three different shows during the day. Uh, hosted by Kate Abdo, Rob Stone, and then the night show, World Cup Tonight, uh, hosted by Fernando Fiore. That's the one I tend to be on. Um, you've met Fernando. He is uh, sort of larger than life, uh, fills the room. He challenged me to a fight, essentially. Well, tell that story. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're being sort of facetious. I, I have that effect on people. No, I, I, I was ragged, right? We were in the car, and I was I, I just told him I didn't think his joke was funny, and... Well, 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 I don't remember. Really, I'm just like if listeners think you like we're really going to fight each other. That was not true. Yes. Okay. I'm hoping that that was obvious. That, but he he play challenged me to to a uh, little hands. That means he likes you. Okay. Good. Um, so we have meetings beforehand, uh, group meetings where we talk about the show. 
uh, points we want to make. And it's, uh, it's a nice uh, group of people. We got Kelly Smith as well, the all-time leading scorer for England and one of the best women's players I've ever seen. I thought I covered the WSA when I was at the Washington Post um, all three seasons. And in my opinion, she may, I mean, she had trouble staying healthy, but when she was healthy, if I recall correctly, it was a long time ago, but she, she was one of, if not the best player in that league. Kelly Smith and Marin Minert, I remember really, really enjoying watching play. Marin played for Boston, I think, and Kelly played for Philadelphia, and they were spectacular. And then uh, in tw- 2003 at the Women's World Cup final in um, Los Angeles, yeah. uh, we got drunk. Me okay. And Kelly Smith. Cool. Yeah. Um, were you just covering it? You not at not while intoxicated. Oh, okay. uh, but I was out there for a few days. Yeah. The, uh, for for whatever reason, the post pulled Stephen Goff. Like Steve went and did the semifinal that the the USA lost to Germany in Portland. Maybe I don't uh, remember. Yeah, that was. Portland. And then he that came home, and they sent me out to the final, which was a kind of a neat gig for someone who was yeah. like covering college sports. So. Um, too bad you guys didn't do a podcast together. At that time. <laughs> was there was no such thing. We barely had email. But yeah, I I uh, I, I spent a night or two. Um, with a group of people and, and um, getting shit-faced, and, and Kelly was one of them. It was fun. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I like how at a certain point of the podcast, there has to be a swear word. Um, we're going to get the I get a, tag uh, at some point. I get a, that's how I get my Time Inc. food pellet. <laughs> every every four-letter word, I get a pellet. Um, is there anything else to, to talk about here tonight? I'm going to Nizhny Novgorod tomorrow. That's exciting. How are you yeah. going to get there? I'm going to take a train, I hope. A Russian train? Yeah. How long is it going to take you? I think like four and a half hours. Is it going to be better than Amtrak? I don't know. I mean, that's, well, probably, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a given. One hopes. Um, riding in a 98-degree Amtrak train. Um, yeah, I'm going to Nizhny. Uh, I'm going to check out of my hotel, and I'm going to get on this train, and I'm going to go all the way there, and I'm going to cover... Uh, Argentina, Croatia. Good game. And big then I'm game. then I'm going to cover England, Panama. Not a big game. And then if I uh, survive that, I will come back, and then we will do this again, sitting on the wall. We'll continue to do it. We my will friend. continue. To I do will it. track yes. you down, you no matter what. So this daily podcast will remain daily. Um, but I will be talking to everyone from from Nizhny, which may or may not be how you actually pronounce that place. Do you think they get bothered when you don't say the full name? Nizhny Novgorod. I'll ask. I I. I don't like rolling the R. I know you got to. Are we the only language that doesn't roll the R? Is English? I actually don't know if the Russians roll their R. I feel like I they... would just say that, like, I have this sort of Russian accent that I, I use when I say a city's name here that is what I think, how I think they I call it. I think like, they probably say Novgorod. Novgorod. I, I yeah. feel like we're the only ones who make the ra-ra kind of sound that I think you just kind of sound like a tool if you use that sound in any other language. At some point here, we're going to have Maria Komenaya uh, from Fox on, so we'll get a Russian accent. You know, we, had, we already had our Shaban on, um, but I learned from Maria that you pronounce her name Maria Komanaya. You have and, to stress it like that? Basically, s- speak Russian like you're pissed off. <laughs> 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 That's the accent. Pissed off. You're in my way. Uh, so this has been good, and the last one we'll have in person, just the two of us here, wrapping for, back for five. Forth. Yeah, I'll be gone five days, I think. Um, and then I'll either be back here or in the gulag. All right, man. Enjoy your trip. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, sunbathing on the beach, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. Listening is a better way to binge content you love while doing things you love. 
Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your summer with more stories like, say, Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. That's my new book. It is out. It is about the craft of soccer position by position. It's available on Audible. Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books, hands and eyes free, while doing almost anything. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in our store, regardless of price, and unused credits roll over to the next month. Didn't like your audiobook? You can exchange it, no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash football, F-U-T-B-O-L, or text football to 500-500. Once again, you can start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash football, F-U-T-B-O-L, or text football to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Big thanks to Brian Strauss. Next up is my interview with U.S. Soccer President Carlos Cordero. We're here today in Moscow with Carlos Cordero, the president of U.S. Soccer and a huge part of the successful bid with Mexico and Canada to host World Cup 26, which we found out about just a few days ago. Carlos, congratulations and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Grant. It's great to be with you for my second podcast. Your second podcast Absolutely. ever after your first one uh, right before the Days before my presidential election. Exactly. election. Exactly. Uh, and I enjoyed that one. I'm sure we'll enjoy this one. But not, nothing more iconic than today, right? Right opposite Red Square. <laughs> in Red Square, I should say. We're like literally 200 feet from the Kremlin Wall uh, as well. It's, uh, it's an interesting time. Uh, World Cup 26 is something now that we can look forward to over the next eight years. Uh, and we had spoken before the vote and just a little bit after the vote, but now that a few days have passed, what can you tell me that maybe you could not have told me comfortably ahead of the vote? Did you know how that vote was going to turn out? Well, let me firstly say, um, you know, th this was a historic moment for um, soccer in America. Um, you know, we've obviously had the privilege of hosting a World Cup, a men's World Cup back in 94, but that was in a different era. This is this is arguably will be the first ever in the digital age. And, and given the impact technology and social media and, and all of that's had on um, the support that we have for the sport, I think this will be transformational. And, and beyond, I think, where we can expect it to be, I think, I think the expectations, I think, will be, um, we'll look back and say, oh my God, this thing was was huge for us. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, but um, back to your question. Um, look, we I said to you some days before the vote that we always had a path to victory. Um, we, we had a um, months ago, we had a, a very clear vision of what we wanted to communicate. On the back of that, we had a strategy and a plan. And I think we executed that plan to the nth degree. And, and that was very simple. Uh, we needed to meet with every or as many associations as we could one-on-one -on -one to make the case for the vision. And, and we did so. I think in Europe and in Asia, there wasn't an association we did meet with, either individually or in very small groups. Um, um, 
likewise in the Western Hemisphere, in CONCACAF and South America. In Africa, we didn't quite get to everybody, but, you know, the results speak for themselves. So we had a path to victory. Um, if I was being completely honest with you, I, I would tell you we, we expected to win, but there was no guarantee for success. We, we were bitterly disappointed uh, just eight years ago when we thought we could and should have won, perhaps. And, and Qatar beat the and, U.S. And Qatar beat the 22. U.S., and we, we know that result. So, you know, there were no guarantees for success this time. Obviously, the the um, uh, FIFA set a different set of parameters. This was right. going to be the first ever open vote. This is going to be the first ever vote where every association would cast a vote, and not just the uh, council or the executive committee. Um, and so, and this was the first time actually joint bids were encouraged. So, a very different mix to the decision, but we felt very comfortable going into that, that the joint bid was the right approach. Talk about the vision that, um, you you know, united as North Americans, we felt um, we had a very powerful argument there, the unity piece. uh, And that really was met with resounding positive reviews from all the associations around the world. Every meeting we had, they were looking at us and saying, we could be you tomorrow, meaning, Mm little states, associations around the world and big who might want to host a future World Cup and not just the men's, maybe the women's, maybe the youth tournaments are going to go up to 48 teams. So, you know, there's this sense now that everyone can be part of a bid. And that had a very powerful, uh, resonated very powerfully. That was part of our vision. So we knew going in as recent, as much as a month ago, that it was ours to lose if, if, I want, to, I want to be humble about it, but we, we knew we were doing very well. Um, the night before the vote, um, we had some encouraging news. Say Russia came in and mm-hmm. uh, said that they would support us. Uh, in fact, I met with the Minister of Sport two days later in Sochi, and um, we just bumped into each other at the airport, and I thanked him for the support, and he said, well, I should thank you. And what he was referring to was the number of tickets that have been sold in the United States for mm. this World Cup in a cup that we're not even playing in. And you saw you saw the fan base that Mexico had. A lot of them were Mexican-Americans. Sure. But the reality is selling 90 or close to 100,000 tickets in the United States when we aren't even playing was something he what is what he was referring to. Yeah. And and so so that was a pleasant surprise. We did lose a few votes, but you know, we were within 5 or 6 of where I thought we'd end up, meaning close to 140. It so wasn't we were very close very in the end it wasn't close. Some people call it a landslide. But look, we, every vote mattered. And so it was never the objective to get 103 or 105, whatever that magic number might have been, the 50 plus one. Right. The objective was to get every vote. And we wanted to go out and meet with everyone. And at the end of the day, it was so well received that we had the, we had the cushion we had. And so we knew that going in. But yet, you're never guaranteed success. And so, you know, we didn't know until we knew yeah. that we had won. And, and at that moment in time, my God, it was a, it was a incredibly emotional because because the team had been traveling for you know three or four months now. Uh, I haven't been home in all that period, uh, so people were exhausted physically. They were emotionally drained, and so when that when the announcement happened, it was like, oh my God, had, had, is that did we hear right? You know, and so it was a very emotional moment and lots of tears, but you know, tears of happiness, and and um, so here we are. Yeah, I, I mean. What, in terms of an infrastructure, will now be built to prepare for this World Cup over the next eight years? How many employees are we talking about in the whole organizing committee type situation? So that it's a little bit premature to be talking about that 
right this moment. Um, I will tell you that we don't have much infrastructure to build, physical infrastructure. Right. Thankfully, we have our we have 23 world-class uh, communities and stadiums that have signed up for this this experience. Um, the the committee that you're referring to will be formed, I'm guessing, over the next two or three months. Um, FIFA happen to be in the middle of a tournament right now. so But that will be in discussions with FIFA and obviously with Canada and Mexico as well. And, and the four of us will sit down and talk about that structure. Um, but there's a lot to do. Organizing an event, 48 teams. People forget just how massive that is. Um, whatever it is, 1,100 plus athletes or players. All of the support that goes with that. Uh, and the millions of fans. So we're, we're going to have a lot of work to do. But I, I don't think much of that will happen, or, or that will not probably start much before September. So the most common fan question I've been getting on Twitter is, will all three teams—the U.S., Mexico, and Canada—get automatic bids? Well, speaking as president of the, the U.S. Federation, obviously it's, it's in our self-interest for that to happen, and I, I, I would tell you that Canada and Mexico feel the same way. Look, this is all about growing the sport in North America. And and one way to grow the sport is to is to ensure that the home teams are all playing. You're going to get the most amount of attention, whether it's commercial attention or fan base support or attendance at matches if the home teams are doing well. Uh, and, you know, hats off to Russia the other night. Um, so, but that decision isn't ours. That decision will be FIFA's. Um, it will, to the extent they uh, give uh, the three of us a buy that means taking effectively three space uh, three uh, three uh, seats away from the the Concacaf allocation, which which will be six and a half in the new format. So we'll see. Um, uh, but that decision is ultimately FIFA's. You know, obviously Concacaf will have a say in it, and and the three of us do. But w- I'd like to think that that will happen. Yes. Okay. Um, so I'd like to see the U.S. in World Cup twenty six in the U.S. Uh, what in terms of the balance, the division of games is is are we set in stone that it's sixty games in the U.S., ten in Mexico, ten in Canada? Well, again, nothing is set in stone, meaning concrete. Um, that that is what the three of us uh, joint um, jointly signed up for, and I would think that FIFA will will largely respect that. But ultimately, it's their tournament and set their decision. But step back for a second. That allocation, 60-10-10, reflects the underlying reality of the fact that, you know, 17 of the 23 stadiums uh, and the largest ones happen to be in the United States. And so, you know, there's also a, a, a mix. You've got to consider economics. You've got to consider just the, the capacity issues, um, where the infrastructure exists, north or south of the border, and so on. So I, I think that it will end up being that, if not very close to that, but that decision is FIFA's. The same, the same applies to the cities. You know, ultimately, that decision is FIFA's decision as to which of the 23 will become the, the final 16. And we've had inquiries from cities who are not in the 23 now. You can imagine over the last <laughs> three or four days, with this being the headline news, a lot of cities have been calling and saying, can we still participate? And I, I wouldn't say never, but, you know, the reality is we've had 23 who have gone through the effort of uh, a very, very rigorous FIFA evaluation right. process. And I think it's fair to them that they be given the first kudos. Now, if someone were to turn up with a 100,000-seat stadium with, with everything else compliant, we'll obviously have to look at them. But right now, we're fo- our focus is on the 23. 
and we'll eventually get down to 16, and that's that's going to be a tough decision. There was a lot of talk ahead of this vote that uh, maybe the the current U.S. presidential administration, the Trump administration, was going to potentially doom this bid for World Cup 2026. Obviously, that did not happen. What did happen with the role of the Trump administration? Well, look, let me first say, and I've said this previously, that all three governments were instrumental in uh, helping us secure this win. And it goes without saying that without the, the assurances, the written assurances, the guarantees that all three governments provided, in, including my own, uh, on important issues, uh, we, we would have suffered the indignity of multiple red flags. And if you looked at the assessment that the task force gave us just three weeks ago, we got we got the highest marks in 17 of the 20 of the 20 categories um, and, and relative to where Morocco came out. So that that had for a number of associations, that was a material reason why they supported us, apart from maybe other things. But so you, you cannot underestimate the influence of the task force. So ultimately, you know, our governments were very supportive. And without that support in writing, we would not have been in the position we were in on, on June the 13th. Um, our administration, um, you know, I, uh, were, were helpful in, in many other ways as well. I mean, I, we had lots of access to the White House. Um, our, I don't need to tell you this. Our government is a, is a complex beast of, a, of, a, of an organization. It involves multiple departments in various ju- jurisdictions. We're talking about local and municipal governments beyond that. So having a, a very supportive White House and a very supportive president was absolutely helpful you know, on the day. Let me also say that this became, a, ultimately became a bipartisan effort. We got, we got resolutions from the Senate and the Congress that were unanimous in support of this bid. So everyone was pulling for us, including, of course, the White House. Do you want to have a U.S. team at World Cup 2026 that can potentially compete to go very deep into the tournament, potentially compete to win the tournament? Right, absolutely. I mean, this is not about qualifying. Even if we had to qualify, you know, I, I think, I think, um, and we will qualify in '22. And that's, certainly, that's the expectation, um, and and we will play in '26. Um, but but absolutely. I mean, I, I say it over and over again: if our women can be a three-time world champion, um, and the expectations for them is not to finish second or third, but to win, you know, our I think our expectations on the men's side should be as lofty. And, and look, um, this, this is all, we have a lot of work to do at home. As, as you know, part, part of my election manifesto was to use the World Cup as a platform to bring the transformational growth we need. We need additional resources. Uh, I mean, financial resources. We need that to grow the game. We need, we need it to have uh, a better pathway for players. We need more coaches. Uh, we need more referees. It goes without saying. And all of that takes money. Uh, and we're, we're not exactly on a shoestring of a budget, but we are a fraction of where we should be. And my hope is that this uh, 2026 event, that now becomes the platform uh, which will basically drive a lot of the growth, uh, starting with resources. And so, um, look, we, we have great athletes. Our country is not, is not short of great athletes. In every sport we compete with um, globally, at Olympics or in World Championships, we tend to win, or win more than our fair share. Why can't we do that in men's soccer? And so I, I 
have high expectations and you know i i i don't want to be disappointed but i do think that we will go for, hopefully we will we will go far as far as or further than we've ever been you just hired the federation ernie stewart as the first general manager on the men's national team uh he's tasked with recommending a men's national team coach um where are we in that process and how soon could we see a national team coach and what role will you play in that well, Grant, you know, one of the things I talked about in my election, which seemed years ago, but was only four months ago, was uh, to turn the the reins of soccer operations to soccer experts. Um, I, I, not to talk down myself, but I do think there are people that are infinitely more qualified who have grown up in the game, who have played the game, who, who, who should be running the operational side of U.S. soccer. And that was the, the point of having these general managers. And Ernie is our first ever. Ernie's appointment, I think you, I don't need to uh, talk to his credentials, but you know, he, he's been extremely well received. The press has been glowing. Um, he understands the American psych. He's played in Europe. He's half European. You know, you couldn't find a better guy. Um, and so the whole point is Ernie has been delegated now with finding that coach. And, and, you know, he is between Philadelphia and Chicago as we speak. He's, he's moving home, house. Um, he's got a family to look after. Uh, he's got commitments in Philadelphia um, with the team there. But but he already, you know, he hasn't started. He will start on the 1st of August, but he already has a list. I wouldn't call it a short list, but he has a list. And he's definitely been taking calls and he's been, been thinking about it. And I think he will, he will hit the ground running, as I said for myself, uh, on the 1st of August. And we don't have a timeline. We, we just want to get the best possible coach in the seat as soon as possible. And, 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 and the sooner the better, obviously. But there's no pressure on Ernie to do this overnight. We just want to get the best possible guy. Er, Ernie is taking a long-term view from for himself. And obviously, uh, uh, whoever he hires has to be compatible with him and his philosophy and 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 so on. And so I, I think it's finding that right mix and match and uh, we're very confident we'll have a coach in, in uh, short order. Meanwhile, let me say, we have an exciting schedule coming up. Um, we don't have any uh, any tournaments as such, not for another year or so, but we've got uh, two really outstanding friendly schedule for September. There's more coming in November. The September ones are at home. I think I actually will step um, in here since I, I, I kind of, you've announced some of this, but haven't announced all of it. As I understand, we're talking about Brazil and Mexico in September, uh, likely Colombia and Argentina in October, and November in Europe against Italy and England. That's my understanding. Well, you know more than I do, Grant. No, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't. The thing is, I don't know what's been made public, so I have I to be careful here. But I, I do <laughs> know, I, I do know there is a a Brazil game coming. Yeah, I know that we have actually Mexico on the cards. Yeah. Uh, as a home game, so those two, I believe, have been announced. But look, the much like the, the the matches here last month, you know, um, against France and and Ireland, uh, or even against Bolivia, you know, back in Philadelphia, the, these were all serious tune-ups. Or you know, and we we want to we want to see a cast of white net, a lot of very young players, many of whom have never played for us or at the at the national team level. So we want to see as many of them, and that that's Ernie's approach. Is you know, we're gonna we're gonna look far and wide and and pull together the best, you know, the largest and best um, um, roster. 
and and that will feed a service well come come September next year. You know when we when we start the uh, the nation's go. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question I would have would just be, September is the first set of games you expect to have a men's national team coach in place before those games in September, correct? Well, as I said, we don't have a timeline, and Ernie only starts on the first of August. So I I think that. Uh, there is absolutely to be very clear. There's no pressure on Ernie to have anyone on board by Labor Day, if that's if that's the deadline. But but the sooner the better. And he 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 he's uh, he's off and running. Okay. Um, and if it happens, fine. If not, you know we've been served extremely well by Dave Sarajan and his staff. I mean, it's been a you know he's he's gone beyond the call of duty. This is just not, it hasn't been an interim. You know he's taken it incredibly seriously and and brought you know. Uh, uh, the same dedication and commitment that you know he's always had, and so we were grateful to him. Um, but look, I mean that's that will happen as soon as it happens. Um, and let me also say that that Ernie's also been charged with uh, a women's uh, a general manager for our women's program, and that's just beginning too. Sorry, not Ernie. We oh. have. Oh, okay. We have. I'm sorry. Gotcha. Uh, we U.S. Soccer have, yeah. and that that process is underway as well. And uh, I've been asked that before as well that will happen when it happens but you know we're, we're also looking for like Ernie a very similar person with a long-term focus on the sport uh, who would work well with Jill and and um, and and with the team and obviously we have a, a major event coming up next year yeah on that the women's being side. women's yeah. world cup yeah. uh, which you still have to qualify for I don't take that's uh, qualifying yeah. for granted uh, for anything um, in terms of other important things tasks on your plate now that the world cup 26 bid has been won um there was a lot of discussion before that election we had in february about what needs to happen in u.s soccer and and some of the stuff we've been talking about some of the changes like the gm and stuff what are the other things that are most important to you to get done now that the world cup 26 bid has been won so look one one of the issues that I was very focused on and, and, and to be fair as were other candidates uh, for the position uh, was the the state of the grassroots you know we have a complex situation back home that we need to look go through all of that and um, organize ourselves in a way that we can be you know put, put put our best foot forward and so there's work to be done at home in the grassroots but again I come back to that this was my priority and and you know, uh, in some respects, um, I would have preferred another year. But now that it's happened and we won, I'm delighted that it's behind me, that we can now, you know, four months into my term, I have now the ability to say priority one check. Let's use that now to get uh, the, 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 the game back home. Uh, uh, we want to raise the level of the game. And for that, we need the resources. You know, we, we have very high ambitions when it comes to growing participation levels at the youth you know a country of this size if you look at the if you look at the statistics in Europe um, you know you, you they generally average about a percent of total population well we're substantially below that now maybe it's not quite so linear but but um, so I, I'm not suggesting you know that big a jump but I think I think sorry yeah we, we, we should have two or three times what we have today and if we want to capture a hundred percent of the potential out there. We need to grow the participation levels. That all re- needs resources. We need more coaches, we need more referees. So, a lot of the focus now over the next year will be on the domestic agenda, but leveraging 
this great event that we're going to have in 2026. And by the way, that's only eight years away. It's not like it's it's a it's another generation. We can we can almost touch eight years. And so there's a lot to do organizing that event, but also taking advantage of that for ourselves to be somewhat selfish for for the U.S. Do you feel like it is going to be possible to have the the Latino communities that play soccer in America uh, and other minority communities, but especially the, the Latino community, uh, feel like U.S. soccer wants them, that they're embraced, that they're recognized? 100%. I mean, my whole campaign was about inclusivity, that if we're not inclusive and we don't embrace all of our communities back home, we're kidding ourselves. So, you know, finding a magic 11 to win on, on the day at a World Cup is all about finding many more millions to sign up and play and, and to go through the ranks. And so I will be bending over backwards to make sure that this concept of inclusivity is taken to the nth degree. And, and so I will bring the same focus and commitment and uh, almost relentless um, uh, drive to the domestic game now that we have this, this great event in 2026. Because if we don't do that, Grant, you know, we're, we're kind of kidding ourselves, right? So if we, if we do aspire to competing with the Germanys, the France, the Italy's, or, or even Mexico, um, you know, who, who have played so well to begin here, um, we, we need to grow the ranks of our, of our player pool. And so that, that is absolutely a priority. The CEO is the most important day-to-day position at U.S. soccer. Dan Flynn has been in that position for quite a while now, many years. Um, how much longer is he going to be in that position? Uh, my sense has been, Dan told me, not much longer. Well, I mean, I, um, not to make a joke of it, but he's clearly closer to retirement than he is to his start date. I mean, you know, so, so he's been with us a number of years. He's done an amazing job. And to be honest, you know, in the last three or four months that I've been on the road, and I literally have been on the road for the last four months on this World Cup bid, Dan has been at home and he's been running the Federation and a lot of things have happened. Most importantly, of course, Ernie Stewart's uh, appointment, but other things have happened. We've reorganized um, at, the senior, at the most senior levels. We reorganized the Federation. We've, we've created better alignment between his staff or himself and the board. We have two more board committees. All of these things aren't just on paper. These things have been populated. Meetings have been happening. So we're, we've made a lot of progress. Um, Filling Dan's shoes will be will be a tough order because he he brings or has with him years of institutional memory and history and contacts and and, and a network that's not you know replaceable overnight. Not to mention you know he played himself, so he's a great love for the game. So that that will happen in time, absolutely. I mean, it's just it seems it's, like a pretty soon though, right? I mean, like we're we talking about in the next six months, next twelve months. Let's see. Now look, we we've got this World Cup uh, now to organize as well, so we have we have taken on more than, than we had three months ago. And this is not a, a small commitment, organizing a World Cup of this size. So um, I'm obviously respectful of Dan and, 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 and his choices and his priorities and his, his family. Uh, but we'll sit down with Dan and talk about that and, and figure out whenever it happens what the right transition will be. And, and we'll, we'll put a, we, will, we will have a very open, transparent search uh, uh, when it happens. Uh, that's something I'm committed to, not unlike how we found Ernie. Um, and um, uh, we have a governance committee um, at, at the Federation that will take responsibility. So we, we have the structures in place to make it happen, 
but we haven't pulled the trigger and that's you know i mean in fairness i i need to have a conversation with dad and again we have other things now to worry about um good things like the world cup um that that we didn't have uh just a week ago i mean we're wrapping up here in a second i appreciate you taking this much time um you talk about wanting to bring in a lot more money than is currently happening at u.s soccer how exactly is that going to happen what are the sources of that revenue going to be well look we're blessed with um some great sponsors uh corporate sponsors and obviously at at uh top of the pyramid is nike nike's been with us forever uh i could tell you when but but as long as i've been uh, around and 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 before um and others um some of these contracts um uh, term out in 21 22 so we'll be talking to them over the next year or two about extending that and these are long-term relationships that we're looking forward to continuing for an even longer term but there will be many new uh, companies and, and faces that will come into the discussion who now want to get involved. There's been a great series, uh, not, I'm not here to promote the Financial Times, but there's been a great series in the Financial Times about the impact the millennials have had um, on economies worldwide. And, and the fact that the millennials in the United States, and these are people from, say, 19 to 35 age, have been the number one, the, their number one sport has been soccer and is soccer. Well, they're coming off an age where they will soon become parents like yourself, their kids will start playing. So we, we see a huge opportunity with um, companies who have, haven't yet entered in, you know, into a conversation with us who, who also see the same upside for themselves and their products. And so we, we expect uh, the range of companies uh, to widen dramatically. And now with the World Cup coming in 26, um, I think this becomes, um, you know, a must for them to engage in soccer. And maybe not, maybe it's not with us. Maybe it's with some of our youth affiliates or maybe it's the adults. But there are lots of parts, there are many other parts of soccer who can also benefit from uh, newer relationships. And so we expect them to engage. And as they engage, even before the longer term contracts term, um, more, more resources to come in. And, and with those resources, we'll be able to you know, grow the budget uh, accordingly. This $11 billion in profit from World Cup 26 that you proclaimed uh, would be coming to FIFA as a result of it being in North America, how confident are you that you can back that up? Grant, we're very confident. In fact, in fact, on, on some of the numbers, some of the projections are actually very conservative. And, and, and we sat down with the task force and they scrubbed the numbers. And if not, they would have given us a red mark when it came to the, the commercial or the, the, the grade for the commercial side of things, and we got the highest marks. But what, what did that 11 billion, or what did the 14 billion, because that's the top line revenue, what did that consist of? It consisted of two and a half billion in ticket revenue. Well, 80 matches, 68, 70,000 average capacity per stadium. You can figure out the math on that. And these are using ticket prices that we feel very comfortable with, that essentially our FIFA ticket prices, you know, with uh, cost of living and other adjustments between now and 26, that's eight years away. We had a figure in there of a billion and a half dollars for commercial hospitality. Well, when you think that the Super Bowl, one event generated $150 million in hospitality for the NFL three months ago, four months ago, we're talking about maybe not 80 Super Bowls, but of the 80 matches, maybe three, four, five, six, 
might be of the Super Bowl quality. The three opening matches, if we have three opening matches as we as we talked about, the two semifinals and the final, that's six. Well, if those even approach to $150 million each, you're at eight $900 million just from six matches, then you have another 74. If you take the billion and a half and divide it by 80 matches, it's less than $20 million a match. So we feel very comfortable on the ticket um, projection, revenue on, on hospitality. So the game day revenues of $4 billion we feel are uh, are very, very doable. To that, we added, you add um, sponsorship and licensing. Um, you know, FIFA haven't had an abundance of North American companies. I've noticed. Um, you know, you've had Coca-Cola for a long time. You've had, you know, the visa people but i mean by and large no new ones since no the new FIFA ones scandal since in the scandals and if any uh, a few have sort of gone away so this is an opportunity a huge opportunity for fifa to re-engage or engage because it's not the re it's engage with north america where you know more than half of the fortune 500 companies happen to reside between us and canada and mexico and mostly in the united states but all three have have fortune 500 companies so we think for fifa this is huge and and um, so we our consultants came up with a figure of three point seven billion, and we can go into that if you want it separately. But three point seven billion in revenue for that one event. But as you know, most of these companies that engage will be there for the lot for for a long life. So we see this as uh, repeating, or 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 uh, I would say petrol. But but these these companies will engage with people for the long term, at least one or more additional World Cups beyond 26. So this is a great plus for FIFA. To that, we add um, a billion and change, if there's change in a billion, but a billion and change for other events that we're, we're, we're thinking about and we're talking to FIFA about. So for example, in the year prior to 26, when you would normally have had, a, whether, you're not, whether or not we have a Confederation Cup, there will be something. There will be matches, there may be playoffs, for the last two seats uh, or last two places for the 48, there will be events that will generate income and revenue for FIFA. So when you add that all up, you get to the 14 billion. Our expenses are high or higher relative to Morocco's, but even at 3 billion, it leaves 11 billion and change. And and that that figure we feel are, you know, is absolutely, it's real. Are you concerned about ticket prices being so high that the common fan who is not of means uh, may not be able to buy tickets. Of course, and and by the way, we we, we could have just had Cat One tickets. You know, and we, our our revenue numbers would have exploded. Cat, where's Cat One? Cat, Cat One are like the the best seats. Okay. We could have just filled the entire stadium with best seats. But no, there there FIFA have a a required breakdown of Cat One, Two, Three, and Four. So the highest to the lowest being four, and so the, there are. There will be plenty of seats in the lower price categories, so that, as you say, the wider fan base, you know, will be able to uh, uh, be at games. But we've also talked about fan fest that fan fest that you you couldn't imagine today, uh, potentially in city in stadiums or in situ in stadiums before matches, the days before and leading up to it. So there are ways in which to leverage these great stadiums and these facilities, um, at at virtually no cost to FIFA since they own the property for that period of time and at relatively little cost to fans to engage. And so there will be ways for fans to get involved 
um, not just on game day is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, you've been so busy over the last eight months. It's kind of incredible when I think about it. It's two campaigns you've been involved in, the U.S. soccer presidential campaign with so many other candidates, which was very time-consuming and I'm sure stressful. Then this World Cup 26 campaign, you won both of them. Um, you haven't probably had a chance to go to a, an actual U.S. national team game that I can think of. Maybe you've been to. Um, how has that been for you to, like, for example, this U.S. men's game recently against France? Uh, you weren't able to go there. Did you, did you watch it? So, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I remember I was hoping to go to the, the game in Dublin. Uh, days before that and and at the very last minute uh, a couple of us had to fly to Bangkok for 36 hours because there were 12 associations meeting that weekend in Bangkok, in Bangkok as it were. so 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 you know I got pulled away for that uh, we were already in Russia uh, when we were playing France and I saw that game in 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 a hotel lounge and I tell you it gave, it gave me the bumps because for the first time actually it sunk it had sunk into me that my god that's my team out there, you know, and I never really thought of it. You're the president that of this I was federation. the president of this great federation. Yeah. So what, what an honor, you know, and they played so well. Uh, and I was there with some Europeans who were very, you know, very complimentary of the way they played. So look, you're right. It's been one campaign after another, but I'm not running for anything else right now. We have a lot of work to do back home uh, on the domestic agenda that we've just spoken to. We've got a lot of work uh, with Canada and Mexico. And, and by the way, uh, I cannot stress enough just how well we work together as a three as as three nations and if there's one legacy here and it's been noticed if there's one legacy here for fifa and, and the fifa world is that you can bring three nations together we might have our issues we might have our problems and and you find me any nations around the world who don't have issues with their neighbors we all do and that's that's how wars began over history but the fact that we three can come together it speaks to the power of football that there are no boundaries. And I, and I mean that in all sincerity. There are no boundaries when it comes to football. We were working together because it was in our collective interest to work together. And we will work together now over the next eight years to make this thing a reality. And so we're very, very excited to be working with the two of them. As much as we compete on the field, you know, and, and, and when that happens, of course, there's only one USA that I support. But at the end of the day, we're, we're just delighted to be partnered up with them. And I think it's going to be a great, great World Cup. Carlos Cordero, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football World Cup Daily Podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss and Carlos Cordero, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And we'll see you tomorrow. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. 
Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.